Welcome to this production from College Place United Methodist Church. To find out more about our church, please visit our website at www.collegeplaceumc.org. And now, here's our sermon from Rev. Tab Miller. Well, as with last week, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. This is not the sermon as presented in service during our contemporary worship because we are rearranging some of our technology so that very soon we will be able to launch our sermon series live in a video cast. And until then, we're working with our equipment, rearranging it somewhat, and so we're recording this a little later in the week, after the sermon has already been presented, but I'm going to try to give you the sermon as I presented it to the congregation, uh, maybe adding a little here and there, but you'll get the main gist of what I did this last Sunday. Now, as I mentioned in our last sermon, the Christian church has historically celebrated Easter, not just on one day of the year, but we've celebrated Easter as a season. There are actually seven Sundays of Easter on the Christian calendar where we're reminded over and over again that it is Easter, that Easter has happened, it has really happened, that history has actually changed because of what Jesus did at Easter, and that we are an Easter people who get to celebrate what it means to serve a risen Lord. And so I'd like to greet you with this. Happy Easter. It's still Easter. And I want to say to you, Happy Easter. But you may want to say, or is it? I don't know. Maybe you are in a season right now where there is maybe not so much joy, but perhaps you're feeling sad or shame or guilt or anger, something that is not as positive as Easter joy. Is that okay during Easter? You know, I, I've never really been able to celebrate Easter as a season with a congregation. This is the first year I've had the opportunity to focus in on one congregation in the Easter season because historically my mission work has taken me away to the reservation during this time of year, and so I'm kind of broken up between my local community and then my family on the Navajo reservation, and so this season is usually a little bit more broken up for me. I've been able to experience all of Lent in one area, usually at home. I've spent all of Lent at home or and all of Holy Week or all of the Christmas season at home, but I have not had the opportunity until this year of being in official ministry and being able to soak in Easter, although I have been in official ministry as, as vocation for a decade now. And as I've been able to now, this first year, really soak in this Easter time, it's become very interesting uh, to, to soak in Easter as a season. It's actually a bit overwhelming. I mean, think about what Easter is. It is, it is supposed to be one of the, if not the, highest celebration time of the Christian calendar. And to think about having to celebrate for seven Sundays in a row can be a bit daunting, even for a minister. How do we keep up this 
joy for seven weeks. I mean, Lent is supposed to, in our minds, prepare us for Easter Sunday, prepare us for one day of celebration, not seven weeks of celebration. And as a good Christian, you may want to say, or maybe I'd want to say, well, yeah, that's great. We get to celebrate. That'll be easy. If Easter is, though, simply an abandonment of all my concerns so that I have this pure celebration heart, this pure joy, without any concern for what's going on in my life, I could honestly admit that I would get a little tired of it. And so as I looked at the Easter calendar, knowing that as a pastor, it has been church tradition and church uh, has been, the church has been grounded in several weeks of Easter to really get the sense every year that Christ is risen, which is a great thing. If I really look at it honestly, though, I kind of I kind of feel like this is a bit much. Does that mean that Easter is not real in my heart? That I cannot well up Easter joy for seven weeks? It could be an indication of some issues, but I have to be honest with you. I think it's okay sometimes not to always be joyful. You know that person, you've probably met them, that's eternally optimistic and never critical. That's kind of like what it would be like to be around Easter so long. You know that person that you're, you're with and they never have anything bad to say and they're always so sweet. It can get a little tiresome. I told this during the Sunday service, service and I can't deprive you of this. I find it pretty funny. There was a meme I saw recently on Facebook, and it said, if you want to know who loves you more, your wife or your dog, lock them both in the trunk for a few hours, and when you unlock the trunk and let them out, see who's happy to see you. <laughs> you know you know that sort of person that's kind of like a dog that was happy to see you no matter what. They're always happy. They're, they're like pancakes. They, you know, you get a big, tall stack of pancakes with lots and lots of syrup, and the first, the first sweet bite is great, but then you get to the end of the pancakes and you're tired of all the sugar. It can be like that, to think about having to be in the Easter mode, full of all its sweetness. Eventually, the sweetness kind of wears off because life is real. Sometimes celebration isn't possible. Sometimes being somewhat critical is necessary if we're going to be honest. Sometimes we have to be critical of a situation if we want to see it change. Sometimes we can't be optimistic. We have to be real and we have to get on with things. And life isn't always full of joy and sweetness. And so Eastertide or the Easter season of celebration is indeed daunting even for a minister. And yet, and yet, I have found as I have explored this season and explored the texts, the, the bits of Scripture that Jesus, or that presents Jesus to us at Easter, I have found in those, those texts a sense of realness that I've not been able to experience before because I'm being forced to slow down a bit and it's been a wonderful, wonderful exploration for my soul. There's a realness in Easter in the Bible. In that first Easter, there's such a realness there. And when I say realness, I don't mean that finally Easter is proving true to my heart, although it certainly should be renewed as something my faith is overjoyed in time and time again. When I say realness, I really mean realness in the sense of the colloquial colloquial sense of realness, 
of being real. You know what I mean? Like when someone says, hey, let's get real with one another, and then you're just being upfront, honest, and vulnerable. That sort of real. I see a rawness in Easter, a realness in Easter. And so when I might say, Easter's great, but I don't know if I can keep up this level of joy and ecstasy that I would assume would be required of me for seven weeks, I feel like the Easter text that we've been reading, I'm hearing God respond to me by saying, I know I know, so let's get real. So having said that, now let's look at the passage of Scripture we have for this week, which is the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, 36 through 48. Again, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 36 through 48. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they had seen a ghost. Because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? Let me repeat that last bit. While they still did not believe because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so that they could understand the Scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Sometimes we expect the Bible stories to be simple and straightforward, with a simple and straightforward plot. We feel like that if God really wants us to understand the Bible, it should be simple. And we even learn them as simple stories as children. And they even seem in those times simplistic, even childish. But that's because we're learning them as a child, not because they're childish. So while we might still imagine, even as adults, because we learn them as children, these stories that depict Maybe a naked man and a woman frolicking in a garden and eating an apple and running away from a snake or embracing a snake. And we forget that, in fact, what is going on here is that God has crowned man and woman king and queen of the creation, citizens of God's kingdom and rulers and heirs of his, and they throw back that love in his face so that they lose all the privileges of being cosmic rulers. We, we forget that it's a lot more than just naked people running around in the garden. They were, they were commissioned to be rulers and to, to display God's image and His goodness to all of creation. This is what the Bible tells us. We also imagine a man with a big white beard on the deck of a ship with circus animals. We call him Noah, and we forget that what he witnessed and what he went through was the death of the human race, save his family. We imagine a little boy clunking a giant on the head with a rock, and we forget that God sent David, and David took that stone and didn't just clunk him on the head with a rock. He sunk a stone into a giant's head. We forget some of the more gory details and the less beautiful details. We forget about the scars and blemishes of the Bible. Not saying that scars and blemishes 
are bad things. They're just real. History is real. Our history is real. We imagine Jesus with his disciples doing many wonderful things. He gets to perform miracles. He heals the sick. He raises people from the dead. He turns water into wine. And we forget that the disciples were with him while he was mocked, while he was plotted against, while he was spat upon, while he was beaten, and while he was pushed away. And eventually they would come to feel fear in the presence of those who killed him, denying that they were ever a part of his journey. See, the Bible's real. And at Easter, we may feel like we just have to be happy. We just have to have it all together. We have to feel completely satisfied with life and faith, or else we're falling short of what Easter is calling us to, what it's all about. But week after week, we run into a group of disciples in the midst of real life. And we see in the text that at Easter, the disciples were confused by what they had seen and heard. They were fearful of the crowds outside their door. They were low in faith and in hope because their king had died. They were pessimistic and they were demanding more evidence of Jesus' resurrection. In other words, the scripture is telling us not of some fairy tale, but showing us real lives of real disciples who are feeling confounded and confused and condemned every step of the way. And what we see in this text is that even after they have seen the risen Lord, they have a mix of emotions. It says he showed them his hands and feet, and they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement. So all at once, all in one moment, they're feeling disbelief and joy, fear and hope. They're feeling the realness of the moment. It's never so cut and dry, even at Easter. We imagine the perfect scene, what would happen if Jesus showed back up to the disciples after he's dead, and we imagine that they would just run and fall into his arms, and it would be this picture-perfect scene, and yet they don't run immediately to him. Eventually, they do fall into his arms, but at first, they pull back. And so what we have seen for weeks now as we've looked at Easter is that Christ is with us and with the disciples in the most complex moments of life. Life is complex. He doesn't deliver scorn for their mixed response. It wasn't that perfect Easter moment. It was real, and he didn't blame them for it. He did call them up. He says, why do you doubt? But he doesn't hit them upside the head with his hands. He offers his hands so that they may touch him. And we imagine all the time those perfect moments that rarely happen. That's how we envision life as perfect, but it rarely is. Why would we even think such a thing? But that's just how humans are. My wife, like uh, any little girl growing up, or most little girls, I should say, imagined the perfect wedding day and While everything went off at our wedding without a hitch, really, we celebrated with the most important people in our lives, and everything happened the way we had planned it, it still was a mixed moment for her. It was the wedding of her dreams, according to her, but she was also not feeling well that day. In fact, she had a pretty nasty cold on our wedding day. And that's just the realness of life, isn't it? She was feeling all at once very sick and very disappointed because she was sick, But she also felt joy that she was having the wedding day that she always wanted. And let's face it, she was overwhelmed with joy because she got to marry me. (laughs) I I, I, I only kid. You know, she she would 
she would say, of course, she's happy that she married me, but uh, maybe I should not have such a high view of myself to think that that was uh, able to bring her out of uh, her sickness and into ecstasy. <laughs> but Christ is offering us such an amazing, amazing gift here that we should not miss. He's offering us a faith that isn't straightforward, a faith that can be sloppy. He's offering us the ability to be with Him and the trust in Him and let Him have the final say, even when we mentally and physically and emotionally can't accept everything. You may realize in your own faith journey that things aren't straightforward. You may have had the most wonderful day on Ash Wednesday when the church historically is to remind itself that we are just ash and that we're mortal. You may have had a great day. It may have been your birthday or, or for whatever reason you may be celebrating. And then you may have had the worst Easter Sunday because of some loss in your life, something you were experiencing. And even in the face of all of this, even in the face of wrestling with life, Christ is here, and he gives us the opportunity to even wrestle with Easter. What does it mean when Christ comes to us and says, I have risen? For the disciples, it meant all at once joy and fear, recoiling and reaching out. Christ invites us to wrestle with Easter because he is real. Life is real. He knows what we face as humans because he came to live and love amongst us. When we think about our lives, we tend to think of them as one big progression of order, and the events in our lives happen in one joyful moment to the next. We imagine we'll go to high school and graduate, college and then graduate, have a great career, and during that time we're making a lot of money, we're going to get married and have kids, and then we're going to retire, and sometime in that time you're going to have grandchildren, and the cycle's going to go great for them, and for generations and generations to come, everything's going to be great, and life is not that straightforward, is it? What happens to us when, in any of these moments, the finances fall through because either we lose our job or our parents lose their jobs because of not something that they did because the company they worked for failed, and then all these plans of going off to college on your parents' job, that falls through and you have to begin working your life a little earlier and starting a career a little sooner than you imagined? What happens in these moments? What happens when marriage begins to deteriorate? You're fighting for it, but the other one is not fighting. And all of a sudden, this perfect idea of retirement, of having your family all together on holidays, all that falls apart. What happens when you lose a loved one who was supposed to be there? You lost them too young. What happens when a disease visits your family like cancer? What happens? Well, a lot happens, but whatever happens in the light of such events, it isn't what you planned. And yet, it is reality. It is real. A new reality has dawned that you're simply unprepared for. My question for you is, have you ever been there? For most of us, we've been there in some degree at some point in time. And yet Christ is also there. Perhaps you have or someone you know has gone through something like this recently. Life has thrown a curveball. 
And yet, what happens in that moment when something good happens for your friend? Your friend's graduating, or your friend is getting married, or your friend's having a child. You may, in that moment, some people may be jealous, but you might not feel overwhelmed with joy, but you're happy for your friend. And so, all in one moment, you're feeling different emotions. You're sad because life has thrown you a curveball, and you're also happy because something joyous has happened and you can still celebrate. What I'm trying to say is that life is full of varied events, and we find ourselves in a world of mixed emotions, and the truth of the matter is it's never as straightforward as we imagined. When we say this is how life's supposed to be, all of that is usually a fairy tale, and we find out that what life actually is is a life full of twists and turns, and it's okay. Jesus wants to be there for you. Easter is about hope in the midst of all that life can throw at us. You know those moments when you learn something new? It's not so so much that you learn something new, but perhaps you've known it most of your life. But finally, it's put into words there. You say, hey, that's it. I've known that, but there it is put into words. I I listened to a recent uh, interview on a radio show. I can't remember where it was, maybe NPR or something. It was a conversation they were having about emotions. And one person on the show pointed out that we don't ever or we rarely feel one emotion at a time. We rarely feel just one emotion. In fact, we often feel in one moment many emotions, sometimes what we would consider opposite emotions. For example, it is very common for people to feel sad and joyful in one moment, even sad and happy. Think about the feeling of nostalgia. If you live long enough, you felt nostalgia. Nostalgia is the reminiscing of something that's happened in the past that won't happen again. It is great joy to remember those moments where you enjoyed your life and where things were the way you wanted them to be, but you're also sad that you can't be there anymore. That is what nostalgia is. It's a mixture of emotions. In fact, God does not immediately change this fact about us, that once we meet Him, all our emotions get straightened out and we have a very straightforward response to everything. When we meet God, we still feel the full range of emotions as Christians. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that God experiences a full range of emotions, and if we're made in His image, why wouldn't we? In fact, meeting God elicits within us emotions. It thrusts upon us a mix of emotions, and this is why we have a mixed response to awe. Awe. A-W-E, awe. Awe is a sense of sheer wonder in the face of something truly incredible, and it often describes people's response to God. They have awe. But then we use two more words to describe how that awe comes upon us. We can feel awful, or awesome, awful, you know, we, it shows us in the Bible that oftentimes when people encounter God, they at first felt awful, they felt fear, and then after a moment, they felt awesome. They felt like they had been touched by God in a great way, and they were overjoyed. So maybe in Easter, during the Easter tide season, you're feeling something other than sheer joy. That doesn't mean you can't feel joy. It doesn't mean that with whatever else you're feeling, confusion or disappointment or sadness in your life because life is real, that you can also receive what God has for you. And one of the things He has for you is His peace. 
In the midst of their fear and their grief and confusion, Jesus shows up to the disciples and says, Peace be with you. And you don't have to wait on the moment where you have your life together before you have peace. That's exactly what Jesus is here for, is to help us put the pieces back together. He doesn't show up when everything's hunky-dory and says, now have peace. He shows up when they're the most frightened to tell them to have peace. Now, of all the feelings that they can feel, and all the feelings that we can feel at one moment, Jesus is most concerned to replace one feeling. Jesus wants to replace fear in our hearts, and he wants fear to give way to peace. Fear and peace are indeed at odds. Now, what I said earlier, joy and sadness, not always at odds with one another, but fear and peace are. So Jesus comes to them in their fear. You can be feeling fear right now and still receive peace, but you have to let fear give way to peace. He shows up to them and offers them peace in the midst of their fear. So how does Jesus, who recognizes our fear, offer us this peace in the place of our fear? In the midst of a crazy life, what anchors our peace? What anchors your peace? Again, we may wish to think in less than real terms. We might not want to be real about things. We want to be less than realistic. And sometimes we think about the peace that passes all understanding, the supernatural peace of God, and we somehow think we have to transcend this moral plane to get access to what God has for us. And we go into prayer and we think that we have to enter in some magical state of prayer where we must obtain, like a monk, this final peace that he has for us. I don't want that sort of peace. I don't want the sort of peace that only comes to us when we finally transcend this moment. I want peace when I need it, which is right here and right now in the real world. Jesus does not offer the disciples peace by reaching out a glowing hand and reaching into their mind and opening up some secret compartment in their mind, some third eye, if you will. He doesn't unlock the the chasm of their spiritual minds to so that they can see the universe as is. He, in fact, reveals he's not a ghostly figure. He's not coming to them from some ethereal plane. He's right there with them, really so. And he offers peace by physical touch. He offers them peace by eating fish with them. He offers them peace by having a word of conversation. He wants them to accept him in the real moment of life, right here, right now, and he wants fear to give way to peace in this moment. It doesn't happen through magic. They don't finally understand the Word of God through some Gnostic way or some voodoo magic. He doesn't unlock their minds this way. No, he unlocks their minds by coming to them and providing touch and sharing a meal And through having conversation, he gives them tangible ways of reaching out to him. In other words, Jesus does not want to meet you in some emotionally charged spiritual ecstasy alone. Can he do that? Yes, he can. But where he really wants to meet you on the day-to-day is in the day-to-day. In real-life moments, he wants you to know that he's there to provide for you real, tangible presence. Sometimes it comes through us. It comes through others. He touches us through the presence of another. Because we are the body of Christ as Christians, we have to realize that we are there to be that physical touch, to be that real conversation, to be the real hands and feet that Jesus can touch us with. And if we're looking for the touch of Jesus Christ, sometimes we need to go to his people. 
He operates through his body, the body of believers. He wants us to be real with him so that he can prove real to us. And it's when they finally experience Jesus in the most mundane ways, through touch, through sharing a meal, and in conversation, that they obtain the peace that he offers. We don't have to go off into the spiritual forest of our hearts and try to beat the bushes in the prayers of our minds in these weird ethereal prayers where we feel like we escape ourselves and we go looking for God to scare him up so that he'll finally rush out and we can capture him. We're going to meet him often and most often in the everydayness of the ordinary. And that's when his peace becomes real. It's real because we need it in those moments. If we were able to escape this life through prayer, then that's not the sort of peace we want. I want peace when I'm in the realness of the everyday, and Jesus wants to be with me in that moment. He wants to show up in that moment. Sometimes we're like somebody who has lost their phone while they're talking to someone on, on the phone with a friend. You know, when you're saying, hey, hold on a second, got to find my phone, and they're going, aren't you talking to me on your phone? That's sometimes how we look for Jesus. We're, we're looking all over the place for him, and he's right here. The key to moving ahead in our life is to not just know the truth, but to be known by the truth. Jesus is the truth. That's the knowledge we need, to be known by God and to know that he knows us. And that will lead to real knowledge of the scriptures as we see. As we see in this text, they learn the scripture when Jesus is in their midst. If you're praying and Jesus isn't really there, then what's the point? If you're reading your scripture and Jesus isn't involved with you, what's the point? The point of all of this is to practice the presence of Jesus Christ in our lives at all moments, knowing that he's real and that he's here. And we don't just go seeking him in the supernatural because the natural realm is penetrated by the supernatural presence of Jesus Christ. It says in the scripture, he holds all things together. And so Jesus, instead of offering to them a way to escape the mortal plane, to access presence with him where they close their eyes and in that ethereal moment they open their eyes and there Jesus is as a ghostly figure before him. No, he says, that's not my offering. In fact, would you have a piece of fish to offer me? (laughs) How, How mundane. Jesus says, let's eat a meal. It's time to eat. That's where we get the peace, is when Jesus says, hey, let's just be friends. Let's just be in relationship. Allow me to be your God. It's more than just a friendship, sure. But it's, it's, it's real, like a friendship. It's real. The culmination of his ministry isn't him showing up as a ghost or as some guru who's been so enlightened that he surpasses this realm. It comes when he is resurrected and he can be touched and he can be hugged and he can be loved and he wants to do that with you right now. He wants you to treat him as he is, as the real-life presence of God in your life, through the power of the Holy Spirit for sure. But it often comes to us in real-life moments through the physical touch, the physical presence, the physical sharing of relationship with the body of Christ, and with one another. Look for God, not only in the supernatural, 
but in the everyday. That is my prayer for you. This has been a production of College Place United Methodist Church. May God bless you richly upon hearing this message.